0: This is Women Authors of Achievement Podcast, episode 78 with guest Leila Kasim. Hello everyone, I'm your host, Darius Savurova, and welcome to the show. Starting at young age, Leila Kasim sought financial freedom and worked at cultural institutions that celebrated Arab heritage. During her university times and while making her first steps at the trading desk at Investment Bank in London, she faced a life-changing health scare that made her put the brakes on all her endeavors. She took a leap of faith and moved to Paris to live every day as though it was her last. And not long after, she eventually settled in New York for the next five years, where she quickly moved up the ranks at Wall Street. Today, as a Senior Vice President of Operations at Lemon Markets, Leila embraces this new opportunity to build something completely from scratch and strives to create more balanced and diverse leadership within the fintech industry. In this episode, we reveal Leila's unique trait of resilience over those years, we speak about toxic work environments, and why she wants to see more leaders like her mother who are distinctively feminine yet extremely strong in the workplaces. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, make sure you leave a review. I really, really love reading those. Layla, what a pleasure to have you today in the studio. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's really funny. I mean, I have to reveal this, that I did actually a couple of months ago interviewed your sister, Samira. he did. But I didn't realize it. Like, I had separate email threads with both of you. And I think with Samira was last year. And with you, we started writing, I think, spring this year. Realization didn't come to my mind that you are related. Yes. <laughs> and then with her, we were supposed to record last year. It didn't happen. So it was postponed. And then I was like, oh, my God, I have both sisters, like, right? One after another. <laughs> Kassim sister sandwich. That's what we call it. But then, you know, I thought, like, what a star family. Because, you know, I get to interview two sisters on one show. And usually I'm like... Very strict in terms of I make sure like people are not from the same company in one season, like I have different topics, definitely no relatives in one (laughs) season. And then I have literally both of you, one after another, but that's serious talking here. That means like how brilliant you are, that I'm just like, all rules aside, we're making those conversations happen.
1: Thank you for waving the rules for us. I mean, I would say it's kismet. You know, Maybe there's something that we want to bring across in terms of messaging.
0: Yeah, yes. like in case the listeners didn't get it with Samira, you'll be like, this is like, now you hear the message. At the same time, your stories are so unique and so different. And thank you so much for sharing actually the insights. What I also thought was interesting that... You have such an incredible story. Like I was reading and I had goosebumps when I was reading your story and the input you gave to my questions. And I was like, oh, my God, I cannot wait to interview this amazing woman and also just things you went through. And I don't know, your sense of reflection and humor and curiosity and strength. And I was like, wow. And so many like pivotal moments in life. But I was... Curious also, why don't you think you've talked about it earlier? Because when I was trying to, this information is not available online.
1: Mm, uh, Good question, Laria. I actually, I did one very brief, let's say, keynote a couple of years ago, actually, as part of the Women in Tech conference. And it was a huge deal for me because I was following Michelle Obama, so it was zero to 100 real quick. And I had, luckily, a wonderful community at Solaris that was supporting me. That's the only time I've done it. Um, Otherwise, it's been very much kept under wraps. There's so many different components to it. And actually, when I was writing in preparation to you, I often thought, oof, is this too much detail? I'm really putting myself out there. But then Having listened to your podcast and really in the spirit of community, I thought, let's be vulnerable. This is important. Let's share the stories. And and this is important for other women to hear and hopefully to see that it's not linear. Similar to my sister, there isn't a straight line, which is, I think, something that a lot of us are really force-fed that Mm. you do step one, step two, and it's incredibly teleological. And actually, We all have these lateral moves, sometimes backward moves, sometimes we jump three steps ahead, and sometimes we'll go five steps back too. And that's just life, you know? So happy to have the inaugural. I really appreciate it. And I know that so many
0: listeners reached out. And, you know, and so many listeners of the show are also the guests because. They want to hear how other women that are on eye level are doing and dealing with things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know a lot of my guests, they listen to the seasons. I interviewed them maybe season one and they're listening to the current seasons. And this level of openness, vulnerability, what you said, is just so much learning because something just click. You know, sometimes you look at the person, you read their story, but you're like, but who are they really? And what are they doing and how are they handling this? And does this all just one big success Not at all. And then you realize that there's a person behind it all. And with all those struggles, with all those ups and downs, for me, usually the signals of you should continue going, like Mm -hmm. never give up because you realize yet there are those moments in life where you feel like maybe I should just, you know, throw this all out and stop wherever I am. And I appreciate the openness because it just gives you realization that Good things take really a lot of time and especially your own development, your own career, your own growth, even personal growth, takes many years. Um, Many years.
1: And it's all about resilience. It's taking those knocks and it's how you handle them and how you get back up from them. I know that sounds a little cliched, but it really is the truth. And being able to say, oh, I could have handled that one better. And upon reflection, maybe next time I would do it this way. But as long as you incorporate that into your journey, then the sky's the limit. You
0: have an extremely sophisticated background, and that's what I think everyone sees. Like, you worked in finances, you handled investor relations. Now you're leading operations at Lemon Markets, very senior. You got lead positions also very early on in your career. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh, so where did it all start? And then you were <laughs> like, well, it started me being 14 working for a local nightclub in <laughs> Liverpool. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I thought it all was very serious all the time. And I was like, (laughs) 14? (laughs) Can you
1: tell me more like what was
0: happening then? Also
1: had a lot of fun. So basically, I had this very deep desire for financial independence. Our mother and father had instilled that within us from a very young age. And I wanted more than pocket money. I wanted to be able to support myself. I had friends that lived in London. I wanted to buy train tickets to go and see them. So how do you do that? You've got to get a job. Luckily, so I'm half Yemeni and we have lots of cousins and uncles and aunties, which are basically your dad's friends that you call uncle and auntie out of respect (laughs) and their kids become your cousins. So I had one such cousin who was a songwriter. He ran the local nightclub R&B hip hop night and basically asked me, do you want to earn some extra money and fill out some membership forms? So at first I was just filling out the membership forms so that people could get their their card to let them in and, you know, get VIP entrance awesome. on Thursday night. Then I did such a good job. I was allowed to work the doors, which phenomenally my mother allowed me a few times. I think she knew that there was no stopping me. So she let me do it a few times. Then once we realized that probably wasn't so sustainable with the school schedule. Oh, boy. We We were a bouncer, (laughs) basically. (laughs) So I got got my first taste of, you know, how to work a door and how to be super (laughs) friendly to everybody and do a bit of hostessing. So that was the start, but that gave me the extra pocket money to really give me the freedom. So as I say, I wanted to go to London. I had friends that were living there. I wanted to see the big smoke and and really had this appetite for life. And that was the route to get there.
0: I love it. And you were already experienced Bouncer at the nightclub, and I mean, like that really explains where you're in Berlin. Probably, it's pretty fun to go out with you because you know how to handle like bounce relations. Know how to work a door. You're like, I've been there. Uh I totally understand you. It's just gonna be me and plus two.
1: I got you, buddy. Yeah, it's, it's all in the eye contact, you know. There's some like hand movements and gestures, yeah, yeah. but... Yeah. Oh, it was so funny. Yeah. And then there was also
0: a community that your father has set up called uh, Nadeh Alkul. I'm not sure if I pronounced it correctly. Yeah. And that beautiful community gave kind of a start into a festival, which now your sister is leading. Like, can you tell me more of how that came to be and how your family just seems to really
1: leading cultural events in Liverpool. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So it's it's a wonderful story, really. So we moved from Yemen when my sisters and I were all quite young. And essentially, Liverpool at the time, although it is a port town and therefore very diverse and diverse for several generations, sometimes in some of the schooling that Samir and I went to, my younger sister, let's say There wasn't so much tolerance so what would happen is my younger sister and i would be coming home from school my big sister actually was picking us up and she tells us these stories today for example i would say my skin is dirty this the kids at school said my skin is dirty can we wash it when we get home and you know my parents were horrified they just moved from yemen to really lean into british education and culture and slowly we were very much rejecting our heritage. So my father was very motivated to do something about it. Nadi al means everybody's club. So what he wanted to do was essentially start a club for local Yemenis and people of Arab descent to be proud of their heritage. And so it started actually with the school that my sister and I went to, where he would come in and do workshops. And I don't know if anybody's seen any Yemeni architecture, but it's Very beautiful, especially southern Yemen. The first high-rise buildings in the world actually made entirely of mud bricks. They've got natural built-in air conditioning. It's really phenomenal. I I recommend you look it up, Hadramot. And so he would come in with these clay tablets and we would sketch these clay buildings out of clay. So it was all very circular. We would dress up in Yemeni clothing. And so it became something that was such a point of contention and a point of shame to a point of pride and those school workshops they continued and they continued even further once we started working with a local art centre which is the oldest one in Liverpool called Bluecoat Art Centre and I started working with them when I was around 14, 15 because I wanted some exposure to the arts and cultural events. So we had started doing a weekender, and the weekender was really popular. It was really such a community grassroots-led event programming. It was my dad, a bunch of our family friends, cooking a bunch of Yemeni food, putting a spread on at the local hall, community hall. Then we would have either Yemeni music or different kinds of Arabic music. I think there was a few Syrian acts, a few Iraqi acts, and sometimes some belly dancing. And it was really about bringing also the community together because sometimes, especially very strictly Islamic communities, Mm. very segregated. And we also wanted to promulgate a different kind of Arab community in the UK, which is one that is more open, more tolerant and more ready to mix Mm. as well. And there's
0: also like inter-exchange between those communities, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So we started there and... The weekenders proved to be so popular that we said, okay, there's really some legs here. And we started with the first festival. And I'm so proud to say that this year was its 25th year.
0: Oh, wow. What's the name of it?
1: uh, Liverpool Arabic Arts Festival. So my father continued to chair it long after I left Liverpool. My big sister still lives there, Ifrah. She's now the chairperson. There's an amazing team there. Anne Thwait, she's been working on it for, I mean, really since the beginning. She's so passionate. And it's phenomenal what has been achieved with this grassroots community-led event. It is something now that is one of the best Arabic arts festivals in the country. Wow. We have a lot of the Arab diaspora traveling from throughout the UK, sometimes even from France, to visit these events. I'm so proud of it that I was part of that small kernel at the very beginning and it was a lot of grit, a lot of hard work and you know sometimes even clashes within the community saying this is not the way you should do it especially when you have perhaps more religious components and factions saying that this is haram. Haram Um, is a term meaning it's outside of the rule of God mm -hmm. and we were trying to say well this is a way to be proud of our heritage and to promote it. Right. And at this time, you know, it was September 11th, it was the Iraq War. It wasn't a great time to be Arab. A lot of the things that were in pop culture, mm. the Arabs were always the baddies. And so this was really a counter cultural kind of let's revolt against that. Let's right. talk about this ancient traditions that we have and such a proud lineage that we have that we want to carry across instead of. Terrorists and bombings. And it's so important to have those conversations and have those people as your father and
0: that whole community of his friends and family and everyone else who was involved who put this effort and it's tremendous effort. It can be so exhausting because you can get so many pushbacks, you get so many opinions. And to really start this and continue over those years, that's a real success. And I always think that we need those people because if those people are not telling the other story, then we have. Usually society believing the narrative that is told, so you just hope for those individuals in different parts of the world pushing the good story or the real story or how other people think in that community. And this just opens up whoever communicates, whoever exchanges with the people who represent that culture and try to make it more open and have that dialogue it makes everyone so much more aware also of their eventual like misjudgments that people might have. This might have, if you're not aware of, or you haven't been educated on certain topics, you might assume certain things. You might have prejudice, but just having a possibility to go in a community
1: where you can start changing your perspective, and we have two less of those. Yes, absolutely. And those were so places. much of our success stories, you know, when we would... We would always conduct feedback surveys at the end of festivals asking people what they liked. And in the early years, when we were still really trying to make it and were super scrappy, there was so much feedback of, I didn't realize you Arabs were nice. That's a Scouse accent from Liverpool, you know. And it was just this, oh, just such life-affirming moment when we thought, okay, this is what we were hoping for, to show that we're part of the fabric of the city and to show that we're part of the fabric of British cultural society and to show people that we're also just humans as well.
0: What I find fascinating is that your story, Leila, like you were part of those creative circles and cultural circles. And at some point you have got this drive towards, okay, I want to crunch some numbers. Mm -hmm. And we know already the part of that financial freedom was definitely something that made you curious. But then, as you said, there was something about those fast paced, work environments where you work hard, you play hard and you really wanted to be part of that. And then there was a story of how you landed your first job at the trading shop by making a bet at the bar that you won. (laughs) And again, I was like, what? (laughs) Like... How do you get your first internship? I made a bet at the bar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I kept that one under wraps for years because people would often give me the side eye and, and, you know, be very disapproving. But now I'm like, oh, F it. You know, I'm pretty proud of that. So I was basically coming from, as explained, a pretty, let's say, arts, humanities background. I went on to study social anthropology, ancient history in London I had no exposure to financial services whatsoever. I had no touch points in my regular life. My mother is a doctor, my father was a nurse, both worked in public health. So it just wasn't something that was on my radar until I moved to the big cities. And what intrigued me, so by this point from essentially 15 to 19, I had worked for cultural organizations, arts organizations, and voluntary organizations, something that's called the third sector in the UK. And frankly, I'd reached a point where I was quite frustrated. I was frustrated with the inefficiency. I was frustrated with how long things took. It felt like no matter how hard I pushed from a project management perspective or in general a management perspective, there were so many people with politics. And I thought that maybe what might solve that is financial services, something that's much more, you know, statistically driven, so on and so forth. Of course, spoiler alert, wherever you go to work with people, there are politics. And that was something that I learned. However, I was really intrigued. How do you conduct an environment that is very much KPI driven, that is much more top line driven, bottom line driven? And what do you build as a culture as a result? So I wanted, again, coming back to the theme of counterpoints, I wanted the counterbalance to that experience, and I wanted also, completely pragmatically, wanted to pay off my student loans as well, and looking at, unfortunately, some of the salaries in third sector and the non-private sector, that looked like it was going to be a very long timeline, so I also wanted to be able to enable myself to clear my balances and clear my debts ASAP, so I made a bet in a bar. I had just finished my first year of university and I was desperate to get an internship because I knew that that was going to be the route to be able to get a job after school. And in walked these traders who had just landed this big deal on the other side on the investment banking side and they were celebrating and they thought that they were going to try and chat us up. But I was actually chatting him up because I wanted to be able to get a job. (laughs) So so I chatted, I chatted, I chatted, told him very, you know, with like steely ambition. I want to work in finance. I bet you wouldn't give me a job. And he thought I was just really ballsy and said, yeah, okay, fine. I'll give you a job. Show up at the office tomorrow at this time. And I did. Oh, wow. (laughs) So... I don't think he realized that I was going to his name is Julian and I think he had a real soft spot for me because I just was scrappy and I was determined and he rewarded that. So he let me stay and let me stay on the trading floor and that was my first internship and and that was how everything unfolded thereafter because from that followed an introduction to a man named Chris who worked on the equities trading floor in London for so an American investment bank. And him and I got along really well. He'd actually come from a very similar background to mine. His parents had also worked in the NGO public health space. So politically, we were quite affiliated. Mm-hmm. And that meant that he just was wanting to give me as much opportunity as possible. So because I already studied in London, he would just you know, any reading weeks that we would have. I'd already studied, and I was already working my other job to pay my way through university. So I would take the reading week, I would go and do an internship, like a short one, and then any holidays, I would take extra time. So I hustled. I hustled hustled big time. (laughs) Were you afraid of anything? At that point, absolutely not. So my parents instilled within us a, a very deep sense of Number 1 the sky is the limit. Number 2 the world is your oyster and number 3 you can do it. So with armed with such a sense of self-confidence, I just deeply intrinsically believed everything is possible. I can do anything. It wasn't actually until a couple of years of knocks and scrapes and working on Wall Street and being un- undermined in in that setting where I started to develop things that are very well known to many of us, such as imposter syndrome, insecurities, you know, wondering, am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I fast enough? At this stage, though, I was just determined. I had my eye on the prize. I really wanted to succeed and nothing would have stopped me then. And it's interesting. It's, you know, when you talk about children, for example, and they're falling and they're picking themselves back up and they're just so bouncy and malleable and they're completely fearless. That's the way I felt. I just felt like I could bounce off anything and anything wouldn't break me. Now, as I've gotten a little bit older, there's definitely a bit of fragility that's crept in where I feel a little bit more like, ouch, that hurt. Or, you know, I sometimes will react to things that are actually just my internal insecurity speaking and For those moments, you have great allies and you have great women around you. I have my mother, who's port of call number one, and bless her, she's had to listen to a lot of rantings and ravings over the (laughs) year and is a great source of counsel. I have my sisters and a lot of very good friends over the years who are able to provide that counsel, that sort of sharing knowledge circle and being able to either talk me down off the ledge and give me objective and sound perspective or a rallying cry saying, sister, that is not acceptable. You fight back. Mm -hmm.
0: Wow, that's beautiful. So basically the key to that is the value system that you were raised with, instilled right from the start. Despite, as you said, there was part being um, coming to UK, right, settling in. There could have been doubts like, am I good enough? Do I belong here? Do people see me for what I am? But that somehow didn't distract you.
1: You still had a strong. It's a good point, actually. I mean, I still certainly grappled with that. You know, okay, identity crises. You know, aged, I don't know, sixteen. Who am I? Where do I belong? But still, you said you were not afraid of anything. No.
0: So the fear was not there. So maybe it was just more like exploration. Yeah. But fear per se was not there, and I think that's such a strong point that. A lot of young women feel fear and, and feel insecurity, and and I think that's also part of the character. People are different, and some people are maybe more vulnerable or more sensitive, and this is totally fine. The characters might be less, more assertive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's just part of your character, how you're born. So there's nothing wrong with that, but still there are certain factors, such as that reassurance coming from your family and friends, That mentors that you had, right? You said that there was Chris, um, there was a couple of other mentors along the way that understood you Mm -hmm. and that you can rely on. And that gives you like a good foundation to not be afraid and take every single opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important to have that environment and and decide. I mean, you can just say, no, this is not for me. I don't want to take every single opportunity. But to have that option as an opportunity, I think that's, there's a beauty in that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, One thing that should also be considered from the perspective of young women is I think that there are also a lot of systemic things in society where young women are being preached at or told that they are a certain way or are expected to act in a certain way. And sometimes there's that performative component as well, which might inculcate fear and might instill a sense of not being good enough also. Social media, we could talk a whole (laughs) episode just about that. But I think that what is most important is surrounding yourself with, as you say, a strong community, great mentors, people who are going to reflect positivity, love, good vibes back to you and just elevate you higher. So tell me
0: about, there was a time where a few, like, I would not even say hiccups, but it was a first crisis that happened in your life. I feel like there was a couple that were very strong that left a certain mark or made you reflect but this one particularly had to do with your health and was a serious health care that mm-hmm. um, you had to go through. And as I speak about it, maybe you can introduce it, what happened to you. But what I'm curious is that how was it like when you were hustling? There's a university, you got your first job, everything is going so amazing. You're really like on top of the
1: things, but then your body decides otherwise. Mm-hmm. So essentially what happened, I was in my second year of university and I had a cyst on my right ovary that little unbeknownst to me had been bleeding very slowly, almost like, you know, when you don't turn a tap off fully and it just drips. So it had been dripping into my body for a very long time. And suddenly I woke up, couldn't breathe. It was very strange. I normally sleep quite well, or at least get to sleep very quickly. And I just couldn't get to sleep. And I knew something was very wrong, almost these animal instincts set in. My mother was in Cuba on a holiday of her lifetime, so I didn't want to disturb her. And obviously, as a doctor, she's the first one you call, or I always call her as I've already established. So I called my poor father, told him I couldn't sleep and something was really wrong. He said, "Okay, go to the GP first thing in the morning. Luckily, I had a GP who was incredibly committed to finding out what was wrong. University College Hospital, luckily, was my university's hospital. So within a few hours, I was on the operating theater. Oh, boy. And luckily, hadn't eaten anything. They drained my stomach, which was full of a liter of blood by this point. So that was why the pain, because my diaphragm couldn't extend anymore, because there was so much blood in my body, because my body had actually managed to process it out of my system. But at some point, it was just a volume game and couldn't That's process crazy. it out. So within 24 hours, I was this very healthy 21-year-old to then having to go into recovery for five weeks. I went back home to my parents' home and there was just a moment of sort of entire reassessment and what am I really doing? I'm not massively loving the degree, not massively loving London. What am I doing My younger sister at the time, she was living in Paris. She was there for her gap year and I had visited her and I'd I'd fallen in love with the cobblestones. It was incredibly romantic and it was my first experience and taste of falling in love with a city. And I'd fallen in love head over heels. (laughs) And I thought, okay, well, I've always wanted to learn French and I've never even thought about living in Paris, but why not? Samira's doing it and I made it happen. So deferred my last year of university for one year. Luckily, through the internship opportunities in London, I was able to transfer that over to Paris. At first, it was actually a two-week trial period. And Mr. James Hepworth, I will never forget him. He was the head of the the Paris desk. And he taught me one thing, dictum meum pactum est. My word is my bond. And it was one of the first lessons that he taught me so Mr. James Hepworth, essentially said at the end of two weeks, do you want to stay? I know you're going to stay here for the next year. Are you willing to stay? Which of course, you know, my arms just went up. Yes, yes, absolutely. I want to stay. And so I lived my best life. I lived every day like it was my last. I was saying yes to everything. I made new friends. I discovered the city. I just opened my heart and opened my world. And Yeah, it was unforgettable. It was absolutely unforgettable.
0: How did you live every day? I mean, what is your definition to live the day as it is your last one?
1: You say yes to things that you would normally say no to. So, for example, I started with no friends and it meant that I had to really put myself out there and be that awkward person standing in the room that's, looking a little uncomfortable, but trying to look really comfortable and trying to make new friends and not seem too desperate, you know. So you have to really put yourself out there and just strike up conversation with people and just walk up to them. Hi, my name is Leila. What's your name? And also at this point, I wasn't speaking French either. So that was a little bit of a barrier. But luckily, it was, you know, quite an international crowd that I luckily fell into. So, it's saying yes, it's saying yes to life. Wine on a Monday evening. Exactly, Things like that. go crazy. <laughs> the most important
0: is that you felt good also and you had the recovery. I think the important part here is that what happened to you was extremely dangerous and, and terrible and scary, but you did the recovery and then you took maybe that as a lesson to live the life, to appreciate it. But you also, again, you didn't become fearful even the fact that you went to Paris to take that risk and to see if you find a job and figure this out, again, shows kind of their character of, I'm just going to continue. This is not going to stop me. And then you didn't stop just Paris, that you came back to London, you finished your degree. And what also I have fascinated is that you didn't feel like you, London, Paris was enough and the, the successes that you were experiencing, this was not it. And that Wall Street was calling you. Mm-hmm. And this is like extremely intimidating. I mean, people that know Wall Street I'm sure they have different perspectives but if you say Wall Street being in Europe and maybe for people who haven't been there or work there it's like you see those images uh, Mm -hmm. from the movies and it's like (laughs) the worst place to be
1: Uh, why did you dream about this so badly (laughs) so actually I, I had no intention of I mean the states were not on my horizon whatsoever basically I visited once whilst I was living in Paris and I thought oh boy it's happening again, falling in love with the city again. And same thing, the energy was just emanating from the pavement. I could feel it through the soles of my feet. And if you've been to New York, you know that that sense of eternal energy. It's all-consuming and enlivening and electrifying. And I thought, okay, never had New York on the radar. Now I most certainly do. So I started putting in a lot of the groundwork. And because I'd had that year off, well, off working in Paris, I essentially had put enough time in that was tantamount to a degree, which justified my visa to the US immigration authorities. And I was working already quite a lot with New York on the Paris desk. So I had a lot of Access and Jeffries was a very American company, I think that probably still holds true today from my friends that still work there. And it was unshakable. I couldn't get it out of me. So Wall Street was the next stop and I landed at a company that probably was quite close to the movies.
0: Uh oh! Well, you went for the full experience. I guess. Exactly,
1: <laughs> all in, more life, more life. I mean,
0: you went for the full Paris experience, where exactly. you have this like beautiful life every day, uh-huh. and then New York with Wall Street with the intensity. So you, so exactly. far,
1: you were like the cliches. Uh, exactly, like, I've got to tick them off. I've got to see what they're we're all about, you know. But yes, I so I moved to New York and started actually right in the GFC, the Great Financial Crisis. So it was a time when. As they said, there was just bloodshed. You know, everyone was getting laid off. Teams, I mean, not just teams, whole departments were going. Lehman Brothers went under. And I started right in the midst of that. And frankly, it was a very good time to be a junior because I was invaluable in the sense that I'm too cheap to get rid of. I will do the dog's body work. I'll work really hard. I still have a lot to prove. So those are the ones that they kept on. And I started in fixed income capital markets, which was a small sort of, it's not exactly investment banking, but it's on that side, on the private side, as opposed to the public side. And we were a small team. And I have to say, I really enjoyed the first couple of years, but it didn't work out since it was a trading brokerage. So set my sights on research and moved there to uh, special situations research. Mm-hmm. I had an amazing mentor in my analyst who I was reporting to a guy called Will Fraunhofer, who was half German actually, although sort of second generation and half Irish. So he had a lot in common with the Irish side. And he really backed me. He really believed in me. There were a lot of naysayers. It was a very toxic, misogynistic environment, I would say. And so there was a lot of questions around credibility, especially with when it came to women. Yeah, but why would you put yourself in that kind of environment? Well, I was a glutton for self punishment. (laughs) I know all jokes aside, I really wanted to prove to the world that I could do it. I wanted to put a royal two fingers up to the establishment to say, I'm smart. I exist. I'm here. I'm good enough. And I'm going to show you So you can tell me that I'm not good enough, but I will show you that I'm good enough. And so I stuck it out. I made it in the sort of traditional sense of the word, became a vice president. I was pretty young at the time, so it happened all very quickly. And to all intents and purposes, success was there. Although, of course, you lift the veneer and behind it, there's another story and What was making me increasingly more and more miserable was the toxicity of that environment. What do you
0: think that environment did to you and your persona that
1: before you came
0: to New York and after you left? Mm -hmm. Have that affected you as a person and your characteristics?
1: Yeah, it knocked my confidence. So all this striving, all this fighting, I was so strong, but so again, fragile underneath. In order to survive in that environment, I had taken on a persona of, I'm the most non-feminine female here. I'll dress like a boy. I'll not wear a shred of makeup. I will hide every aspect of my femininity so that I can be taken seriously for my intelligence, which is so bloody unhealthy. It took me a long time to unravel from some of those deeply damaging experiences where I wanted to celebrate all of my femininity and be proud of being a woman. And if I wanted to, God damn it, I would wear tight clothes. If that's what I felt like, I will do that. It was all about averting the male gaze and making sure that I did everything to avoid it, so that I was basically a head on a stick. You know, right. all that would be taken would be my intellect and my thoughts that I put on the research reports, and nothing else. And I mean, you scrub yourself from history when you do that. It's really so sad. So I got laid off from that job. And it was one of the best things that happened to me. And part of the reason I got laid off is because again, I was a bit too stubborn and stood up for myself a bit too loudly and challenged the CEO on my bonus because I'd been promised something that did not materialize. And Wrote a very long, very angry email. Don't put that stuff in an email. Everyone <laughs> just have that conversation in person. My, my little sister was like, oh, no, you put it in an email. It's like, yeah.
0: But nonetheless, you fought for yourself.
1: I fought for myself, and I'm really proud that I did that. I think
0: knowing that you were laid off because you were fighting for yourself and you're challenging someone kind of puts you in a very strong position.
1: Yeah, no, I'm, even though I didn't go about it the right way, the message was still the right one. And I'm super proud of the fact that I had one last hurrah. I stood up for myself. I made sure that it was known that I was unhappy. And then I left graciously. And actually, it came through the grapevine afterwards from one of my very good friends who was a brother from another mother that they could have very easily transferred me. I was still ultimately a junior to a senior analyst. And there were many hands needed on deck. And it was confirmed that that was the reason why, which... Also, was a sense of vindication, like, okay, well, I knew it, so I'm glad I found out. But it was a very good day. I called my ex at the time and whooped down Second Avenue, like, I've been laid off, this is the best thing ever. Freedom.
0: Freedom. Now I actually can figure out what's happening in New York, because probably you were, like, <laughs> exactly. working from 6, 7 a.m. until, like, yeah. morning every next day.
1: Yeah, I was at the desk at 7 every day.
0: So here you were like, mm, let me experience New York, but not for too long. So mm-hmm. you had to come back to UK, I did. Um, which was also an interesting experience. You know, after going through that, like, do you come back as a winner or you
1: feel like you lost something you lost out on? Oh, I was utterly deflated. But I felt like I'd. So American visas are tricky. The one that I had was tied to my job and I had basically a two week grace period to find a new job. Two weeks two weeks, Two weeks. In Uh, Germany, I think it's like six to eight months. Oh, wow. That's very generous. Not in the U.S. uh, Two weeks. Oh, boy. Yeah. So it almost, and actually remarkably, because things move fast in New York, it almost happened. I had an offer on the table, but the company got acquired as we were interviewing, which was highly unfortunate. So there I was. I sort of half packed a bag because I thought that I would be back in a matter of weeks, And I remember my best friend at the time, Nora, she came over to my apartment as I was packing and she burst into tears and she was like, I know you're not coming back. I said, don't be silly, I'm coming back. She said, no, I I can feel it. She's very witchy. She just knows things like she's a white witch for sure. (laughs) And she knew I didn't come back. So I left, I moved back in with my parents. I was 30 years old. After all this kind of sense of success and climbing the ladder and all of these markers, I had none of that. I was stripped back and I had to figure out who is Layla now without all of the accoutrements, without all of the dressings, without all of the labels and the titles, and who am I now? And at this point, I had been working so hard. I had 15 days off a year, which is very common in the US. So I hadn't seen my family so much since I left home at 16. I didn't know how my mother and father took their tea or their coffee. It was these really simple, beautiful things that I just didn't know anymore because I'd been away for so long. So at the age of 30, as a woman, I was able to relearn these things. And the grace of my family to take me back in and allow me to convalesce from wounds that one couldn't see. They were all under the surface, but all of the unhealthy habits that I had come to take on. So this femininity I had to fight for that back I got fit I sort of became much more embodied again which was really important and sounds silly but feeling my fingers and my toes again getting back into my body and who I am and or who this is and and I figured it out and from there I thought okay well next stop so started a consultancy I thought what's the most important thing again we come back to freedom I don't want to go back and be chained to a desk again from 7 a.m. till 2 a.m. It's just not healthy and I can't do it. I've had enough. it. And I've seen that story. I've seen that movie. You know, there was so many people around me on Wall Street that were getting burnt out by the age of 40 because they'd worked crazy hours from early 20s, you know, oh all the way through to 40 heart attacks by the time people are 45, 50. And I, that just wasn't my story. That wasn't going to be my story.
0: So, Leila, can you tell me more of how you transitioned to then the startup scene? Because I know you from the times you worked at a Solaris Bank, or known now as Solaris, and you started there as a head of strategy and shareholder relations, and then as a chief of staff, again, major change in what you did before. Mm-hmm. Different city, yes. Let's start with that, different environment, different responsibilities, really why this 180 degree change suddenly in your life and where you decided to see yourself. Don't tell me you fell in love with Berlin.
1: <laughs> maybe. Mm. <laughs> you know, Possibly. Paris, New York, but Berlin, <laughs> well, you know, I had a little bit of everything that I like. You know, the great of New York, maybe some of the glamour of Paris on the west side, not on maybe. the west side. Glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> strong words here, strong words. Different kind of glamour, that's for sure. So after Wall Street, I basically started my consultancy and what I was doing as CFO as a service for startups, angel funded startups, uh, right up until seed stage. And whilst that was great fun, it gave me a lot of the freedom. It was the first time I was truly entrepreneurial. And I mean, I had hustled before, but hustling for your own clients is a different thing entirely. So For about just under three years, I did that, and whilst it was great fun, it got me back in the flow of things, and it allowed me to use all of my experience from my Wall Street days. I was on the outside, and I'd really had enough of driving or attempting to drive things internally in companies from the outside, and I said, okay, this is not working. I want to be in-house. I want to be able to take ownership of topics. I want to be able to pick them up and run with them and drive them. And so I was actually put in touch with Roland Foltz, who, former CEO of um, Solaris, and it was so funny because I originally wanted to speak to him. I, had, I hadn't made up my mind yet about Berlin or Lisbon, and it was going to be one of the two. I was desperate to leave London for whatever reason. London and I just don't get along so well. I was struggling there, so I really, I was ready to for a new environment, new city, and transpired very quickly that Roland thought it was an interview, whereas I thought it was just a information gathering exercise. And so within 15 minutes, I realized that he thought it was an interview. And I thought, okay, I'll let it run. And then he just said, okay, well, so what do you want to do? Do you want to work for one of the business units? And I said, no, I don't want to do that. This is what I want to do. And that was the beauty of having been on the outside and consulting I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted something that was the culmination of all of my experience to date. I wanted the financial services training. I wanted the startup. I wanted all of that to come together in this like gorgeous, juicy position that was strategic. And so I basically said all of those things in much, say, more professional language. (laughs) And he said, okay, well let's see. And then I received... Did they create a role for you? So there was a role that was head of strategy that was in pre-existence. It was adapted. Certainly the shareholder relations came in much more strongly once I came in. And yeah, it was the fastest from an interview to signing contract to moving. It was two weeks. It was mid-August, 2019. I was on the ground 1st of September, 2019. So I gave up my lease in London, Again, packed some bags, came over with just two suitcases, seems to be the thing. Two suitcases to Berlin, took a room in a, my friend's auntie's house. She lives in Berlin and rented rooms out to lodgers. So I took the top floor room and started working. And it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. I was curious, you know, how was it like working also with
0: Roland? Why do you think? Because as I understood, you work very closely with him. Yes. And you mentioned that, you know, you had a huge respect for him and appreciation for
1: his work ethics. Mm -hmm. And also during that time, you've grown a lot. Why do you think that was the case for you? Essentially, he told me something which is something that is very much aligned with my values when it comes to managing people is that you have my trust until you do something to lose it. So run, go for it. I know that you can do this. You have my backing. And for him, he hated micromanagement which I deeply abhorred as well the last client I had when I was consulting was a horrid horrid micromanager and I think he was really the straw that broke the camel's back and why I wanted to go in-house afterwards and Roland basically said as long as you perform I don't care how you get there I don't care how you do it but just go for it this real sense of Freedom again within my professional life to be able to approach topics and tackle them in a way that I deemed most fit. It was a huge sense of empowerment. You know, it really allowed me to bring my own brand. Of how to do things into all the things and I think he was sometimes a little bit bemused by me like okay Layla, well, let's try it sure why not and he would challenge me also he made me better so sometimes I would come with proposals for things in in a very gracious way he'd say no, no no this is what we're gonna do and it never felt like he was putting me down it always felt very collaborative but for the most part 90% of it it was really I was under his wing and he let me run and he let me do my own things, try my own things. It's just such a beautiful environment to
0: be it in. It really that is. Like you're able to collaborate, try things and you're given feedback and you don't feel like you're like, well, maybe I should not be doing that. Such important also like work relationship to have yet at such a, let's say, top managerial level. Yeah. Because I feel things might get a little bit political there. Totally. Um, and they do and they do and here it sounds everything but political but collaborative which is rare
1: yeah that's why the chief of staff role is something that is becoming more popular in certainly european tech companies it's something that's been obviously very well established in u.s companies for some time because of the president chief of staff on the political side it is a relationship that is fundamentally based on trust and that is the only way that it works is when you trust each other and you know that you always have each other's backs. I mean, my poor now fiance would very well put up with Roland calling me at the weekend and late at nights. And it actually recently transpired his wife would also Roland's wife would also say, "Do you really have to phone her? It's the weekend, you know." But it didn't feel like work. Yeah, now I loved it every second inter- of it. It's very
0: like entrepreneurial. In exactly, a way, and it's really cool. Exactly. But tell me, I mean, when I think when I reached out to you, you had kind of a period where you were, things were changing. Mm-hmm. So there was a moment of change. And now that I have you on the show, it's actually official mm-hmm. Like this is can be talked about. I think this is just quite recent news. That you're senior vice president of operations at Lemon Markets. And it's so interesting that you switched from you're constantly like, hmm, where I haven't been yet. <laughs> and you know, you worked at those trade desk, those huge corporates, those huge investment banks that have like this legacy and history behind them. You worked with consulting startups of different sizes with Solaris Bank, which is around 700, 1,000 people. Mm -hmm. And then you were like, you know what? I want to be somewhere cozy with 30 people. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a seed stage funded startup. Mm -hmm. So a completely different environment, very scrappy.
1: Yes. What are you doing there right now? So I am heading up operations. So I essentially take care of all of the business operations, all of the people teams. The reason why I joined is actually, again, it's all about stories, great stories. And when I met the founder, Max, this is a vision I can get behind. He's somebody who is so brilliant, knows the problem so in such a detailed fashion and respect and is desperate to solve it. That is also something that's incredibly intoxicating, someone who's so dedicated to solving the problem. And I really wanted to be a part of that journey. So, I've accompanied all of these stages of company life cycles now from scale up, hyper growth, mature, corporate. What I didn't have from the inside, I did from a consulting perspective, was being in-house early stage and being able to scale it from the ground up. That's what this opportunity really is, is to be able to bring that experience to bear here. And you know what? It's teaching me so much the other way around. It's always about being lean, being about most efficient. I thought we were when we were scaling up. I realized at an early stage, no, 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 no. We can be even faster. We can be even more agile. We can be even more efficient. Are you guys hiring? We are hiring. And I would very much like to plug Lemon Markets on (laughs) your podcast if anybody is interested, please do come and check out our website because we are growing and we would love to have some brilliant people on board.
0: And I also know that this is part of your personal mission that you would like to see more women, women of color, in leadership positions and you're fostering this. You were working on a couple of projects at Solaris. What other ways you are making this happen for other women to potentially follow your footsteps or potentially open the doors to women that want to be in leadership or managerial positions. Mm
1: -hmm. So I think one of the most important things is role modeling. So doing it live. One of the things that I've heard, so even already at Lemon Markets, actually from some of the young women there is it's really important for them to see women in leadership because they know that it is an aspiration of theirs that can be fulfilled. It can be very demoralizing as a young woman at a company if you see that starting to thin out as you get more senior. as incredibly problematic because it means that diversity is not lived throughout the company. So first and foremost, role modeling. Second of all, mentorship. I have had some fantastic, not only female mentors, but male mentors throughout my career who I've been able to lean on, who've been a great source of counsel That's something that I'm trying to pay forward. So anybody that asks if I have the time, I always say yes. That's incredibly important to me, and the first thing that I say to every single mentee when we start working together is, my payment, in inverted commas, is you do this for somebody else down the line. I want you to mentor somebody when you're in a position to be able to do so, so that it just becomes this multiplier. You basically have this huge ripple effect That's the goal is really making sure that you empower others, that you give them the confidence to believe that should they wish if they want to go for leadership, they can, they absolutely can. And they have the power within them to do so. That's my dream. So mentorship and then also having diversity, equity, and inclusion lived from day one. That was another big thing that was really important for me. Joining lemon markets is how many opportunities do you have to build the culture from the ground up? And to have an impact and to be able to shape that, it's incredibly rare for a company that I know will be successful with this team, especially with Max. So having the opportunity to get in at ground level and build that and make sure that that culture is something that's suffused throughout the company as it grows, that's super exciting.
0: That is a great challenge and a fantastic opportunity, as you said, to start from the scratch and mm-hmm. to see also if your thesis, if your approach works, mm-hmm. if this
1: formula works. Absolutely. I think that's There's a sense of responsibility for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. Radical ownership and making sure that you can just try and see. And one of the wonderful things that we have is one of our principles that if data should come in that changes our mind, we take it into consideration and we change course. And so... That's something that I'm doing live. It's really wonderful to be learning this much again, and I'm really enjoying it. The last
0: question is um, something quite consistent on the show, and I'm curious to hear uh, who would you like to highlight on this episode as a woman author of Achievement? And I almost know who, because (laughs) since I interviewed your sister, I felt that, you know, I have 50 50 chance to know what would be the answer. Uh,
1: You're right, Daria. (laughs) You probably guessed it. My woman author of Achievement would be Dr. Anne Hoskins, who is our wonderful, wonderful mother who, shout out to mom, she turned out 70 last week. She is someone who instilled such a sense of adventure within me, such a sense of daring, such deep values and being true to oneself and making sure that you're always checking in with what that means and what that looks like, and course correcting because there's no way we can be on the right course all of the time and that's totally okay. And really allowing my sense of adventure too and encouraging it and just saying yes to all of my harebrained schemes from the early days of working in a club to getting into a school that was far away and taking myself off there to moving to New York and working on Wall Street, all of these things which she didn't necessarily understand but actively encouraged. And I think she's just a wonderful, wonderful human and I feel very grateful and privileged that she's my mother.
0: Wow, this is beautiful. Thank you. And almost perfect timing with her birthday. So it's a <laughs> yeah, little exactly. like post-birthday, like Shut wishes, shout out, like <laughs> little cheers. We should have like a little like Prosecco on here, chin, chin. <laughs> I always love when the guests speak about their mothers and other role models. It's just fascinating to hear people just give this moment a thought and trying to dedicate a few words to another person. There's a beauty in that. Leila, thank you so much for being on the show today. I think we just d- went down the memory line like big time. Big time. I think this episode, if someone will be like, hey, I would like to get to know you better, you can just <laughs> send a link to the episode and be like, this is everything you might want or not want to know about me, but, you want to know. <laughs> but it's like, this is it. Thank you again for being on the show, sharing that story, inviting people a little bit into your life. And hopefully, maybe through this show and the community, you find people for
1: yes, to work come with. Joy, love, and work do that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, Daria, for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.